Hello, Dumbo Feather listeners. This month, we're catching waves with the conversation between two legendary surfers, Lauren Hill, who we spoke with for issue 45 of the magazine, and Belinda Baggs, co-founder of the Sea Roots Movement. Love that. Surfers for Climate. Lauren and her partner, Dave Rastovich, have a podcast called Water People, all about the aquatic experiences that shape us. And so we invited her to have a chat for us with Belinda. Her work at Surface for Climate is all about mobilising wave lovers to take positive climate action. So, Bindi, you are from the coal mining town of Newcastle on Australia's east coast. How did growing up there influence your career trajectory toward activism, toward environmental activism in particular? I think it was a really slow burn. As you said, it's a, a coal mining town, especially when I grew up. The whole neighbourhood was really blue collar and I actually had a lot of family and friends who were employed by that sector, whether they were working in the mines specifically or on the conveyor belts or the big industry or something, but it really was a big employer. So as a kid, you know, nobody really questioned what was going on in that sense. And so we'd all just meet up at the beach in the afternoons on the weekend and enjoy this beautiful coastal landscape and thrive in this amazing blue water. End of the weekend, everyone would go back to their day jobs and not think much about it. I always remember as a kid, you know, picking up rubbish off the beach and in the school playground and constantly getting teased by all my friends because it wasn't the cool thing to do at the time. But I felt like that small act was a way that I could give back to the one thing that I love so much, which was, of course, Mother Ocean that was providing me with so much joy and also giving me this sense of belonging in the world where I guess at the time I didn't really have a sense of belonging. I was kind of awkward and dorky and I didn't have great friends at school. And so to be able to go to the ocean frequently with my father a lot of the time and it be like a place of family and to celebrate that wisdom and obviously connect then with like-minded people so I didn't feel like the biggest loner in the world was such a treasure. Every time there was a big storm event, I remember just all this brown water rushing out of the Hunter River and obviously flooding along the beaches and the coastline and getting so sad having to wait a couple of days in order for that to clear up just because I didn't really want to go surfing in this brown soup. What was that? There's a lot of farms up there, so it was probably just a lot of like dirt and sediment that was washing in off a lot of those areas that had sort of lost their natural trees and grasslands and things like that from, from heavy farming practices. So I don't think it was anything that was too heavy from the industry, but it definitely did sort of sweep by a few industrial areas along the way. It was heartbreaking to just see yucky brown water everywhere and of course like a heap of trash on the beach. My nana also lived over the other side of town in Carrington and I remember visiting her as a child and there being this like black kind of soot that would be all over her house and would be all over our car when we left and you could smell it in the air and it was actually like coal dust in the air because she was quite close to a lot of those industries that were on Kurugang 
you know, I drive over to Stockton or up to one mile for a beach and you'd be driving past the huge coal loaders that were loading onto the ship. And like I said, I didn't think much of it as a child because everybody just accepted it, didn't think about the causes. It was just part of reality. But the older that I got and the more that I learned about all these issues made me realize like, wow, well, I've experienced dirty air on a small scale and what that feels like in your lungs and the effect that it has on you. And that's only like a small amount compared to what some of these people are experiencing that are living in it every single day. So I think it sort of just gave me this real sense of what could go wrong, really. And then the opposite flip end to that is being exposed to these beautiful beaches and these amazing locations and the pristine national park that lay just south of Lake Macquarie and seeing like both ends of the spectrum and going, wow, this is how we need to keep things. Like we need it to be beautiful and pristine and thriving with wildlife, not this. And so we need to do all we can to fix that. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about Newcastle specifically because I've only been once or twice. And one of the times we were visiting family there, it was almost like I was having an asthma attack. I was really struggling to breathe. I guess the predominant wind at that time maybe was west and it was blowing cold dust. Was that the troublesome wind? Yeah, it seems to just blow like everything from all those heavy industries like cold dust. There's also, you know, a lot of other gases that they emit into the air. There's obviously levels and times when they're allowed to release them and things like that, but I'm not sure if they at that point were sticking to those rules and regulations and they have probably tightened up quite substantially now as well as a lot of that heavy industry has actually been abolished. So the town has changed, especially in the last decade. But yeah, it's confronting when you're all of a sudden smelling and feeling this heaviness in your lungs of what's being put into the air because of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, I found it really disconcerting in my body, just really unsettling to not be able to take deep breaths. And um, the only thing I could really pinpoint it to was something going on in the air. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely evident and worse when the westerlies blow or nor'westers, you're right. Mm. Um, you were talking a little bit about getting to see beautiful beaches and, you know, comparing that to some of the aftermath of environmental changes like flooding or the impact of dirty air. You've, you've had this incredible surfing career and you've come to really be an icon in terms of surfing style and environmental values. And I feel like most people don't understand what an absolute surf rat you are. And I mean that <laughs> in the, as, as the highest compliment possible. You're one of the most surf committed people I know. And we've traveled a little bit together. And I can say that I've witnessed that your appetite for being in the ocean is basically unquenchable. I feel like that part of surfing can be a little bit difficult for non-surfers to relate to. What is it that keeps you going back to the ocean? day after day, hour after hour? Oh, it's so many things. I'd say I'm probably a little bit obsessive compulsive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I do have a lot of energy. And so I think the ocean's been a really great place to channel that in a positive way. More than anything else, I'd say that it's just that sense of playing and ultimate fun that keeps bringing you back, wanting to experience that over and over again. That to me is the number one thing. I've also traveled quite substantially throughout my life. 
and had moments where I've lived on people's couches and out of my van and found myself on the other side of the world feeling completely homesick and missing my family and the one place that I can always go to to feel that sense of homeliness is being in the ocean. And so I think that's another thing is just that feeling of like belonging and the connection that you get to nature as well. I think when you are removed from that after visiting those natural places, you know, obviously for me it's surfing, but I've heard people get it from the mountains and from trail running and all, all other types of experiences in nature that when it's removed from your life, you really miss it and it feels like something's wrong, something's broken. And so I would definitely say that it's the sense of connection to nature, just being out in wilderness and the vulnerability that you feel as well, like being really exposed and how small and I guess in a sense powerless you are in comparison to this grand large ocean with so much energy. The friends that you make as well, like there's nothing better than, you know, your friends being like, hey, you want to meet up? Like you want to go grab a coffee? It's like, nah, let's go for a surf and experience that together. It's so much fun just to feed off each other's energy out in the water. And I guess, again, that brings back that element of play and, and having fun. Now I'm teaching my son how to surf. And so that's absolutely priceless to be able to watch him experience all these things in the ocean for the first time and paddle back out and tell me about how the wave moved or you know how he he got barreled because the wave like hit a shallow bit in the sand and it really threw over him and so just his experiences as well as now another draw card to get into the ocean in the afternoons after school when maybe I wouldn't have always pursued like a crappy onshore surf, but I'm like, no way, I'm taking race and it's going to be the best surf of the week. So, Isn't it amazing? One of the things that I love so much about surfing is how it can alchemize a totally mundane day and turn it into absolute magic just from one wave. I feel like Not many of us as adults have outlets that can be so transformative so regularly in our day-to-day lives. Just catching a wave can light up your day or your week even. Or your month even maybe if it's good enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Completely. And I really realized that too after having my son racing you know, I was out of the water for a month or two months and seeing how like just one wave can really be the make or break of your week or your month and really change your whole perspective and outlook on life. And so I think I'm a lot more cautious now about other people's needs when they're out in the water as well and just a little bit more passionate about helping them get served too. (laughs) Oh, that's so kind. (laughs) I was a little bit hesitant to ask you about this because I feel like no male surfers are ever asked about how parenthood, fatherhood in particular, has changed their surfing lives. It's almost always mothers who get asked this, but I've seen how motherhood has really emboldened you in your environmental activism. Can you talk us through those changes a little bit? Yeah, I guess, like I mentioned earlier, I've always been environmentally aware, obviously started my journey picking up rubbish from the beach and then looking at ways where I could individually do better in my own household, in my own backyard, with my own choices. And then when I had my son, I started learning a lot deeper about climate change. And when you look at the trajectory 
that we're currently on, it's terrifying. And he's going to be in his prime in a lot of those years where there's possibly going to be some really harsh impacts. And so I see as a parent, my number one role is providing him with a safe and flourishing future, whether that be in an hour's time tomorrow or teaching him to read and write, get a career, learn to look after himself so he can be like a fantastic adult. But I saw that climate change was threatening all of that. And so as a parent, I felt like it was partially my responsibility to do all I could in order to make that better for him and, mm-hmm. and the next generation. Mm. Wow, that's so beautiful. So you've just started your organization, Surfers for Climate. What is it about right now? And what did you find was the most compelling science that's motivated you to take action and take it right now? The most compelling science for me would have been looking at global warming. The trajectory is that we're to reach four degrees above pre-industrial levels before the turn of the century if we don't change our ways, if we don't do anything and we continue business as normal. And at four degrees Celsius, it's predicted that we'll see a complete breakdown in civilization. And that's, that's scary. The turn of the century, my son's going to be still alive. He's hopefully going to have grandchildren. And they're all going to be experiencing that. And what does it mean for surfing as well? That may be like a little bit of a selfish thing, but surfing's really special to me. It's part of our family heritage and I want to pass that on to my son. And so there's all these huge effects that we're seeing on the oceans at the moment from ocean acidification, coral bleaching, coastal erosion, the rise in sea level temperatures are really having drastic effects on local ecology. We're seeing like huge sections of seaweed that are completely wiped out that are leaving no home for a lot of the little fish. And it's really affecting everything from the, you know, the small end all the way up the spectrum as well. Like not to forget the bushfires that we experienced last summer, burning out like frontal dunes and choking our lineups and incinerating so much of our beautiful wildlife that there was just too many signs that were pointing towards the fact that we needed to do something, that we needed to do it now. And that as surfers, I believe that we really sit on the forefront of the climate crisis, experiencing these things firsthand. Our coastlines are so vulnerable. You know, we're seeing all those things that I just mentioned happening to our oceans. They're right below our boards or along our shorelines. And we're in a perfect position to do something about it. Mm, Yeah, we're really canaries in the coal mine, aren't we? We're feeling it in our bodies and watching the changes happen at our beaches in real time. Yeah, completely. There are a handful of quotes that surf media really loves to throw around. What you were just saying reminds me of one of those from psychedelic psychologist Timothy Leary, who wrote that surfers are throwaheads, quote, of mankind, not the dregs. They aren't the black sheep of humanity, but the futurists. And they're leading the way to where man ultimately wants to be. The act of the ride is the epitome of be here now. And the tube ride is the most acute form of that, which is your future is right ahead of you. The past is exploding behind you. Your wake is disappearing. Your footprints are washed from the sand. It's a non-productive, non-depletive act that's done purely for the value of the dance itself. And that's the destiny of man. I think he articulated that really beautifully and, and much more eloquently than most of us ever have. Um, <laughs> Completely. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about how you feel about 
that quote, and also how this kind of self-centric practice, this practice of riding waves, fits into a global movement for abating climate change. Well, I love the quote, and I think it definitely hits the nail right on the head. It's perfect and very relevant. And riding waves is a selfish act. I'll be the first one to admit that for sure. Like nobody else is gaining from me having the wave of my life, really, in reality, (laughs) (laughs) except for maybe my mom if she was watching, (laughs) because that's what I feel when I watch racing. But I think it's that act that connects us to nature, the fact that a changing climate can potentially eventually take wave riding away, take these sacred places that we visit away or threaten them in some way that it will be the rallying call. That selfish act of riding waves is going to be the thing that is going to see us all rally together and make big change because we want to protect our sacred waves. We want to protect the places that they break. We want to protect our coastlines and the things that we love. Mm, yeah, we, we really saw what you're talking about come to fruition with the Fight for the Bite campaign, which you were really instrumental in, in rallying coastal people and surfers in particular from in Australia, but also around the globe to really rise in opposition to the proposed deep water oil exploration in the Great Australian Bite Marine Park. Why do you think that campaign was so successful? Well, I think there was so many amazing people working on it to start with. And we all sort of called upon our contacts and our friends and our little groups that we resonate with to make a difference and help us along the way. But more than anything, it was the spill modeling was so devastating. You know, when you saw that big blob come from the Great Australian Bight and reach all the way around to southern end of Western Australia and then all the way up the east coast to Port Macquarie and even over to the western coast of New Zealand, it was like, wait a second, you know, (laughs) we have to do something about this because it's threatening the whole southern part of Australia's coastline and Not only is it going to affect our waves, it's going to affect all the marine life that rely on those locations to survive, as well as all our local economies. There's so much tourism in a lot of these areas and our livelihoods are based upon that. So it was kind of a no-brainer. Why risk it? Yeah, absolutely. That was also the rallying call for us at Surface of Climate to see, wow, people really care about their coastlines and they really do want to stand up and protect them. And this is obviously from an oil spill that's a lot more visual than climate change. But if we can connect these dots and show that climate change is affecting our coastlines and our waters just as much, then I think that we're going to have a lot of surfers there who care and ready to take action. That makes me wonder about the goals and objectives of Surfers for Climate. Is part of the challenge making climate change more visually accessible for people? Definitely. I think that that's one thing that we really strive to do is be a completely inclusive organization. We want people to join us no matter what board you ride, what your background or identity is, but also no matter how advanced in your environmental journey. So, you know, if you've never done anything environmentally friendly in your life to people who base their everyday around it, we want you to be part of Surfers for Climate. And we definitely strive to 
really tell those stories from people in communities who have experienced these things firsthand in order to draw the links together and make people kind of realise and become aware about the situation. I got to be part of uh, the paddle out, the fight for the bike paddle out here in Byron in the Bay. And um, what struck me so fully was the sense of community and all paddling out, you know, with a unified voice, a unified message. It was in opposition to something, but it was also in support of something even bigger than that. And that's the health of the places that we love, the beauty of the places that we love that nourish us and feed us in so many ways. And that just felt so sustaining and so bonding and and empowering being part of a real community, having that for spirit and not just anti-spirit. It's a, it's a slight change, but a, a paradigm shifting one. Oh, I completely agree. Down here in Torquay, you know, we had somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 people paddling out and so many faces that I'd seen in the surf before of people who'd kind of turn the other way or like, you know, never paddle up and be like, hey, how are you going, you know? And it was it was amazing just to see everybody come together and I feel like it's actually really changed our community here as well where now everyone is talking to each other and there's definitely more of an inclusive environment here and that was just amazing to see that unity. Mm. Speaking of inclusivity, I noticed that the acknowledgement, respect and engagement with First Nations people is a founding element of Surfers for Climate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think at the time that we were starting Surfers for Climate and doing a lot of the strategic planning for the organisation was also the same time the BLM movement was happening. And I realised personally that I'm a surfer of white privilege and that I needed to strive to do better and to do more and to really learn and listen to First Nations voices. And I think a few of us involved in the organisation all kind of spring from the same place. And so we really want to include as many First Nations and Indigenous people as possible and really make sure that we with every decision that we make, we come back to First Nations wisdom and their connection to country and keep drawing upon that guidance and just be as absolutely as respectful as we possibly can along the way. What has that looked like so far? Have you been engaging with local elders in your area? Or So we have a beautiful, kind and lovely First Nations woman, Lara Went. She's actually from Foster area and she's an artist. She's one of our directors and she's been a really amazing sounding board for us. Just with every important decision that we make, I'm calling her being like, hey, want your advice on this one? And like, how do you feel about this? So that's been really amazing and I've definitely been able to learn so much from her. It's really simple things, stuff that as a white privileged surfer, I would have never thought about before. And I think they're really important things that we all need to learn. Can you give me an example? I'm just really curious. Yeah, so simple wording, like do you say First Nations or do you say Indigenous? It seems like it's a little bit of a generational thing where most recently say First Nations, but maybe if you're talking to our parents' generation, it's more respectful to say Indigenous. Our most recent one was if the person that's giving the welcome to country needs to be from that country or not. So apparently if they're not from that 
country or that mob, then they can give an acknowledgement of country and not the actual welcome to country. Yeah. Mm. So just lots of little different things along the way. We also have another amazing ambassador. Her name's Rinchen Wilson and she's from Gippsland area. And so she's been a really great sounding board for things like that. And she's helping us put together a bit of a guide on things that we may not think about, but things that we could definitely all do better with. So that's in the works. We want to include and get as many First Nations voices as possible. So we have Billy Bain along for the ride with us as well, who's another amazing surfer and artist from Sydney. And we have a couple of lovely ladies from Vanuatu as well. So we're just trying to learn as much as we can and support First Nations voices as much as we can. It's so exciting. I, I find it just so fascinating. And yeah, I just feel excited about the future of surf culture in particular with organizations like yours that are pulling in people who have always been on the fringes of surf culture, which has been dominated by a very white, very masculine, very privileged young position. So I think we're just going to see new interpretations of surfing, new lines drawn, new iterations of the culture. And it just feels like a really fertile, exciting time. Yeah, I agree. It's such a good, wholesome way of looking at surfing, I think. Mm. Yeah. New wave. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A new wave. Can you tell me about the concept of thoughtful larrikins? Yeah, so (laughs) this is uh, mostly Johnny's idea. So I'm sure he would explain it way better than I am. But your co-founder, Johnny Abeg, who you formed Surfers for Climate with. Yeah, exactly. And he's been such a gun with a lot of our messaging. So it's been really great to have him on board. But yeah, so the roots of surfing were known to be kind of rat bags. In some time in history, we were dropouts, but we're always having fun and we're always making light of situations. Thoughtful Larrikin, I guess, is just a play on that, is that We all want to have fun. It's all in good spirit and good humor, but we do definitely, we're thoughtful and we care. Yeah, it feels like it's an iteration of being very sincere, but not too serious, like really caring about these issues, but remembering that just like surfing teaches us over and over again to play, to have fun, to keep a joy about all the work that we're doing. We'll actually keep it personally sustainable. Yeah, completely. And I think that's the thing with climate change is like it can really get you down. There's a lot of doom and gloom and really bad statistics out there. And so not like negativity take over to stay focused and actions based and positive and yeah, make light of the situation where we can. Oh, that's so great. Can you talk us through what you're finding are the most accessible solutions for people to engage with in terms of abetting and ideally reversing the impacts of climate change? With Surface of Climate, we have four main goals. The first one is to mobilise and empower an alliance of surfers who really care about climate. And so I think that what we were talking about before with a lot of the storytelling and connecting the dots and I guess just generally spreading awareness about the issue, we all agree that there's something to be said about those really intimate conversations that we get to have with each other in the lineup, maybe in the car park. It's usually when somebody's half out of their wetsuit and in a vulnerable situation. Um, <laughs> And so <laughs> cornered, I think that's called cornering. Something. Yeah, cornered, exactly. Yeah, maybe. With their pants down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And so I think that's one big thing, even though it doesn't seem like an action, but just simply by talking to your friends is a great way to start the conversation happening. There's only so much one person can do, but when we get 50 of our closest mates in the lineup involved, 50 actions will make a big difference. And so we really want to push out that whole idea of empowering an alliance of surfers to care. I think we all really need to take action on implementing climate solutions in our own lives. So as surfers individually, we've come up with a bit of a wipe out your emissions guide, which is kind of focused on a surfer's lifestyle. So it obviously includes things such as our equipment to be mindful of our purchases, how we get to the beach, where we holiday, you know, we're all guilty. I completely am of traveling way too much on aircrafts that are burning massive amounts of fossil fuels. And so just to be more considerate in that sense. Just to jump in on that note, I just saw a report released saying that 1% of the population creates 99% of the world's aviation emissions. And surfers would definitely be in that privileged 1% who are going to surf and holiday on a whim. It's a major part of our lifestyle that's going to have to change. Yeah, I would definitely agree completely with that. As soon as a swell hits Indo, it's full of Australians. <laughs> and I'm sure that it's same in um, you know, parts of the States where everybody goes to Hawaii or Tahiti or other locations as well. So I think that's something that we all need to be more considerate about and look at other options like a staycation or holidaying in our own state. COVID's been a really great reminder of that, at least here in Australia. In my region, we didn't get put in a situation where we couldn't surf, but we obviously couldn't leave our local area. So a lot of us ended up hunting out these little nooks and crannies that we wouldn't really explore or surf otherwise and ended up having some of the funnest waves that we've had. So, you know, there's definitely something to be said about exploring those unknown regions around your own backyard. Yeah, I feel like it's given us a real opportunity to break habits that we've gotten into as surfers, especially if surfing plays a role in your work life, in your livelihood. We get into these cycles where maybe winter is prime surf season here and you stay for the first part of that. And then as the surf begins to wane, you jump on a plane and you go to Indonesia. And then as summer comes, the surf's not so good in Australia. So you get on a plane and you go to Hawaii and we get into those loops of habits. And this year has really not allowed that. So we've had to create new habits, explore new parts of the coastline, as you said. And I think it's really gifted us the opportunity to develop deeper intimacy with the places that we call home because we get to see all of its cycles and seasons in ways that a lot of time, you know, we, we don't make the time to. Completely. Yeah, I would 100% agree. And even like enjoy the surf when it's maybe not great as well. Yeah. <laughs> because it may have been onshore for the last week and you go out and have a surf anyway and you're like, oh, actually that was really fun and I wouldn't have normally went out and so <laughs> there's definitely been bonuses there. We also have two partner organizations, which is Wave Changer and Sea Trees. So we really want to work with them implementing a more sustainable surf industry. There's the product side of it, which is anything from surfboards to sunscreen to the wax that we use. And there's already so many different great alternatives out there part of that's just implementing them into the mainstream and then there's obviously more work that needs to be done 
in other products such as our surfboards. So we don't have to have that dependency on fossil fuels anymore. Yeah, because all of those things that you listed traditionally have been made with a petrochemical base, sunscreen, surfboard wax, wetsuits, although there have been really great strides in terms of shifting away from neoprene. Patagonia has been experimenting and sharing the technology of Ulex and moving away from a neoprene-based wetsuit, so that's really great. But we really need the science and the technology to catch up with surfboards, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. I had a really great chat with the crew from Wave Changer yesterday, and we're definitely going to work towards helping each other out in that realm to come up with the best plan forward that we can support these shapers who are already exploring the alternative materials and whatever it may be in order to get those out there and get it moving because it needs to happen sooner rather than later. For something like surfboards, there are so many thousands of them produced every year. There's probably not going to be a singular solution that will actually be sustainable in terms of resources. I was walking on the beach, walking home from a surf the other day, and I saw a bunch of cuttlefish skeletons. I was like, man, I wonder if you could crush down cuttlefish bones and reshape them into a foam. (laughs) I'm just wondering what kind of localized solutions will come up. I know, it could be really interesting. I've heard that the algae foam is really great. So that's interesting. And I've also heard Mm. some other reports on mushroom blanks. So that's also really interesting. It'd be great to see where it evolves to. Yeah. Yeah. We also want to help the surf community play an active role in stopping offshore fossil fuel developments. Mm. We've already seen that with Fight for the Bite. We're now seeing it with PEP11 where a lot of surfers are stepping up to the plate. We're currently working with Friends of the Earth who are focusing on the expansion of the acreage releases down in the Otway Basin. So just trying to really rally the surf community around that because like you said earlier, we've seen how successful that was with the fight for the bite. And so I think we need to keep pushing that envelope to all these different regions and really demand that we stop extracting fossil fuels out of our oceans along our coastlines and of course on our land as well. The other thing that we really aim to do is to make our MPs representing coastal communities take action on climate. There's 2.5 million surfers in Australia, which is a huge percent of our population. Wow. And obviously most of us live in these coastal areas and so we need to do all we possibly can in making those relationships and using our influence to I guess, prompt our MPs and our government leaders to champion action on climate. Mm. Wow. And what does that look like now? How does a surfer who's starting to be interested in engaging with climate change, how do they start to dip the toe in politically? I think in a lot of areas, it could be as easy as just reaching out to your local MP. You know, when you call, they're quite happy to talk to you. You can also email and they always respond. You know, if they just get one call or two calls that are pressuring them in one direction, it may be pretty easily disregarded. But when you have like a huge amount of your constituents giving calls with, you know, things of concern, then they're eventually going to listen. And so that would be my tip or point for now is get on the phone or get on your email and just reach out to these people who represent us because they want our votes and they have our job to, you know, take care of our local communities. What's the ultimate vision and idea of success for Surfers for Climate? Um, 
well, solving the climate crisis, of course. (laughs) (laughs) No, I guess my vision moving into it is seeing every surfer be active on taking climate solutions. And that could be on a variety of scales. I realize that everyone's completely different and they have different interests and different lifestyles. And so it may be individual action. It may be more larger scale systemic action but generally just having everybody care and when an issue pops up like we saw with the fight for the bite I know I keep bringing it up but like having everybody jump on board and unite and rally for the betterment of our environment Mm, that's great Bindi just to close I feel like so many of us feel the despair about the slow pace at which we're moving to address climate change culturally and legislatively But when I look at surf culture, it actually makes me feel pretty hopeful. Surf culture has changed so much in the last decade, in the last five years in particular. It's really become legitimately more inclusive in so many ways and more sensitive to environmental concern. Where do you find hope in your personal life and in your work as an activist? You know, the days where I'm super down, I find myself in the ocean, no matter how bad the conditions are. It's a place that's just this gentle reminder of what we're all fighting for, you know, is our mother ocean, our earth, just the notion of knowing that I'm doing everything that I can for my son, for these places that we love so much, for all animals and life on earth, then that's what gives me a sense of hope. And of course, it's encountering amazing people such as you and a lot of my other friends that I get to work on these amazing projects with. And so knowing that there's like-minded people out there and people who are going to throw it all on the line and do everything that they can as well is definitely hopeful. The other thing about surfing too is that there's so many different types of people that surf now. Just the other day, I was surfing with a teacher, a lawyer, an accountant, a CEO, and a student at the same time. And so I was like, wow, just with this mix of people right here, we have the power to make so much positive change, you know? And so I think that's the great thing about surfing at the moment is everyone doing it from so many different walks of life that we're able to make a difference. Thank you, Lauren and Belinda. You can find out more about their work via waterpeoplepodcast.com, that's Lauren, and surfaceforclimate.org.au for Belinda. This episode of the podcast was edited by the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga. Dumbo Feather is a print magazine, a podcast, and a website that tells stories of people making positive change in the world. Check out our work and become a subscriber over at dumbofeather.com.